I'm Audrey Cooper, Editor-in-Chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and this is Fifth Emission. You're listening to the sounds from street protesters in the Bay Area this weekend. We've seen violence and serious looting around California. A federal contact security guard from Pinole was killed while protecting the federal building in Oakland, and curfews have been imposed around the nation. Joining me to talk about this recent unrest is our East Bay columnist, Otis Taylor Jr. Hi, Otis. How are you doing? Hey, Audrey. Thanks for having me. So these are not the first protests that you have covered um, in the East Bay or in, in the Bay Area. Does does it feel like other protests that you've been covering or is it is it is is this a cultural moment that everybody is talking about i fully believe that this is something different i remember going out to latham square on friday night protesters were streaming in from side streets and i believe i tweeted something like this feels like it could be something big it is different in that The movement that I'm experiencing is decentralized. There is no truck leading the protesters through the street, leading the march. It is people that have come together by themselves, whether they've been brought by social media posts or word of mouth. But they're ending up together en masse, and then they're walking together. And from the folks who have gathered, that's where the vandalism comes. People splinter out from the main group, and that's where we're seeing a lot of destruction. So on Saturday night, you were um, with some black business owners in Oakland. Tell me, because we we know now we're recording this at about 5.30 on Sunday, Sunday evening. Um, we know last night was really destructive, um, that a small group of people around the Bay Area looted Union Square, they looted Emeryville, um, places that were destroyed more than I can remember um, in in my career in the Bay Area. So can you talk about why you decided to be with business owners last night instead of, you know, out on the front line where windows were getting smashed? Right. So what's what I'm seeing is different as well is that the the in Oakland, the path of destruction has enlarged. I mean, before, uh, you know, in 2014, it was, you know, above Grand Avenue. Then t- 2016, it came from like 7th to Grand Avenue. This weekend, it went from 7th Street up to MacArthur Boulevard. I mean, we're talking about uh, more than a mile of of destruction. But I don't want to speak too much on that. Last night, I really wanted to spend time with business owners who are impacted. Because if you recall the Great Recession, that hurt black people more than any other community. In fact, 43% of black households had their wealth evaporated by the Great Recession. So I really wanted to hear from local black business owners about the struggles that they're already having with getting something simple as the PPP loan and you know having customers feel safe enough to venture down to their stores in Oakland and now that there is these these actions going on i'm i'm sure they're worried about customers uh, feeling like they're safe but i also wanted to talk to them as they spent another night trying to guard against 
more destruction. I was at one restaurant, Tribune Tavern, where they had a window broken, and even as they had a sign that said "Black owned in the in the window," and you know the chef is just by himself on a street corner waiting for protesters to come by. And he told me uh, after I arrived, uh, before I arrived, excuse me, he said that people had come by and asked him, where is the riot? And that told him that they weren't from Oakland. And that's part of the discussion that's going on right now is where are people coming from? And I think it's more complex than people uh, would like to acknowledge. I also went to see uh, Nina Joyner at Fillmore, which is a novelty shop. And she, again, was alone standing outside her her um, store. And I remember this group of police officers clad in riot gear and like the slapping their batons against their hands. It just seemed quite menacing having them approach as we're having this conversation as as two people and then she steps off the sidewalk and gets in the street because she doesn't want her back to to these officers and it just it was this moment of you know we are scared of the people that are sworn to protect us and as a journalist and then as a business owner it, it just something doesn't seem right because even when you do everything right there's still that sense of fear uh when a group of police officers are walking down the street we have some audio from uh an, a, an owner of a queen hippie gypsy a store in oakland let's listen to what liliania ayers had to say we need to show and prove that there are people like myself and other business owners who are also standing outside of their businesses to show that we're here and we are supporting our community. There's no need to tear us down. So that was Liliania Ayers, who owns Queen Hippie Gypsy in Oakland. You know, before um, you mentioned that this feels like a new cultural moment. I, and I wonder, you know, when we're talking about something that is um, as as pervasive, unfortunately, as police violence and um, the killing of people, particularly brown and black men and 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 women, but brown and black men by the police, it, this feels to me like we've 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 seen a change in how we're discussing it, and then a change in how the media is discussing it. It's no longer an issue of um you know the both sidesms that I think people rightfully criticize some media coverage for it's uh, there have been acknowledgments in the media that people are angry because this is an ongoing issue that doesn't seem to be getting any better does it does it feel like that to you? And what is it like as a black man covering something that must feel so personal and, and having to cover it as a journalist? Oh, wow. That's such a, a lot question. there. <laughs> it is. Uh, well, I feel that my colleagues uh, in the media are, are framing what is happening better than they have in the past. Before, when a black man, let's take Eric Gardner, for example, six years ago, he said, I can't breathe while a New York police officer had him in a chokehold. Six years later, we have George Floyd, who's telling an officer who has his knee on his neck for eight minutes that he can't breathe. 
in the interim, we've seen changes because Eric Garner was doing something as simple as selling loose cigarettes. And when his death was discussed, I noticed that it was about what he was doing to break the law instead of what the officer did to break the law. Now, George Floyd allegedly, it's an allegation, it's not been proven, allegedly was involved in passing a counterfeit $20 bill. Now, think about it for a second. A counterfeit $20 bill is the reason why this man isn't alive. That is egregious behavior, and I think finally my colleagues have realized that that no matter if he did pass a fake $20 bill, there is no reason whatsoever for a police officer to put his knee on his neck for eight minutes until his life expired. I think that is different. Now, for me, I feel that this is something that I have to do as a journalist um, and as a black man. I have to use my voice and my station of privilege where I can afford to live by myself in Oakland, where I can afford to take trips, where I can afford to eat what I want. It's incumbent upon me to speak for those and to allow those who don't have as much as I have to amplify their voices because the struggle hasn't stopped. You know, if we don't have a killing, if we don't have people in the streets, people are still suffering. They are still under systemic racism. They're still suffering from hundreds of years of disenfranchisement of black and brown communities. And when I see people in the streets, I always want to ask them when, when we're talking is, one, why are you here? And two, what are you going to do tomorrow? And what are you going to do the next day? Because when you go home and close your doors, the next time you get up, yeah, maybe you can go outside and, and, and go about your life. But as a black man in America, I feel every time I step outside or every time that anyone who looks like me steps outside, their life potentially could be put in danger just because of the color of their skin. I want to talk about what reaction you get from readers when, when you write about these issues. But first, let's take a break. We'll be right back after this. Otis, before we, um, before we took a break, we were talking about how you view your job um, as a columnist and a journalist covering these, but also as a black man trying to elevate the civic dialogue around it. What do, what do readers, what do they write to you? What do people say? Um, are they questioning what these protesters want? What is the vibe out there from the people who are not coming out on the streets? You know, I find it, I try to, you know, when I work with my editor, I try to make sure that um, my arguments that I present are rational and that my logic can be followed. And I want people to reach a similar conclusion, even if they don't agree with me, but hey, maybe this is something I should look into further or think about further. That's what I really want people to do. But I find when I write about race or immigration, 
people will write to me and say that I'm part of the problem. In regard to race, I'm part of the problem because I'm even bringing it up. And if I didn't bring it up, then there wouldn't be no race problem. So without me commenting on events that happen, um, it's almost as if, you know, I'm trying to provide context for our readers, but there are some readers who feel that that context is part of the problem. And that baffles me. But, you know, everyone who writes me, and if they take the time to write me a thoughtful email, I will respond and try to have dialogue with them because I think that's part of my job is to have dialogue with our readers. Um, I recall a few weeks ago when I wrote about um, undocumented immigrants who uh, wouldn't have access to the United States stimulus, um, the CARES Act, and I – I just noted that these folks who are undocumented are more likely to work in low-wage jobs that are not operational right now because of the coronavirus. Furthermore, they more than likely do not have savings accounts, so they are part of the most vulnerable population right now. One reader told me that they came here illegally, and so they should suffer the consequences. I wrote to this reader who is someone I have had dialogue with in the past. I wrote to them and I said, don't you realize that we're all immigrants to this country? I didn't hear anything back. You've also been out there speaking to the protesters themselves. And and you mentioned that, you know, unlike a lot of protests historically that we've had in the Bay Area that might have a leader or some loose, uh, you know, organization pulling it all together, this one, really doesn't have that. Um, and, and usually by this point in the protests, you usually start to see something like a group starting to organize. And and it, it doesn't seem like that's really happening. When you speak to people about why they're coming out and taking to the streets, what are they telling you that they they want to accomplish? Well, you know, a lot of folks have told me, you know, it's their anger, it's their rage, particularly uh, young black and brown people from Oakland. This is a society that they've experienced through social media, through these uh, videos of black and brown men and women being killed and being posted about on social media going viral. They seem to be indignant and they're they've had enough they don't want their lives to continue this way now i've spoken to in the last two nights a few protesters where i couldn't quite understand why they were here uh friday night there was a young white man in khakis who had a hammer in his backpack and he was just going down franklin street Smashing windows indiscriminately. I caught up to him, and my first question was, why are you here? And he said, I'm trying to bring down the system. And I told him, is the system, these Asian businesses, these black businesses, are they part of the system that you're trying to bring down? These are small business owners who are closed right now who aren't making the revenue, but the tax bill is still due. And he got upset with me for questioning him. I walk away. 
I was sitting on Broadway and just watching people go by and as, as this white man approaches me, he's older, he comes up and he tells me, hey man, uh, do you mind if I use your phone? And I'm thinking, oh man, this coronavirus, do I want someone touching my phone? But of course, I had wipes that my mother from South Carolina, she sent me. So, okay, yeah, I can wipe it off. I also saw it as an opportunity to have a question, uh, a conversation with him. Turns out he identifies as white, but he's actually Latino. I'm like, okay, great. I want to have a conversation with him. His mother turned off his phone because he was going to the protest. She didn't agree with him going out, even though his family is Latino. Furthermore, he doesn't live in the in the Bay Area or the East Bay where 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 this was happening. He lives further out. And he said that he and his friends were so bored being stuck in the house that they figured that they come to Oakland to to revel. I'll say that to to participate. And we walked around for a little bit and I just more and more what I'm hearing, um, I, I felt frankly insulted by his lack of awareness about the situation and his lack of awareness of why he was there. I actually met up with him and his friends and they were outside of the Walgreens chomping on Pringles chips that had been looted from the store. It left me kind of disheartened. Now, I want to say this person is not indicative of everyone who is protesting, but it is a representation of people that I walked with to understand their reasonings for being out there. Um, and why I do that, Audrey, is because I feel it's my job to not just show the images of destruction or people marching or chanting or holding signs. It's also to understand why people are out there. It's not just enough as a journalist to say, oh, people are angry. No, I need to talk to them. Um, let them tell me why they're out there in their words. But doesn't this idea, I mean, I, I, I hesitate sometimes to even go down this like the quote unquote out of state agitators um, because I think it does discount a little bit if we if we don't put it in perspective the people who are turning out uh you know yesterday i i was crossing the street and i saw these two older i mean they probably were 70 years old and they were both white and they had on they had uh, painted a uh, black lives matter on a on a poster board and i i guess maybe they were going to a protest but i mean that seemed very genuine to me i think you know um there's there's a lot of people who don't know how to show that they're also frustrated with it, even even if they're white or maybe particularly because they're white. And these protests seem like they're an opportunity to go out and make that known. I, I also really think that the virus in general, I don't know about you, but I, I think it adds to the overall level of stress in America right now. And it's just this has all been too much for people to take. I, I, I wholly agree with you. I, I, I know um, that young man I just mentioned, but th there, there were others out who seemed to be having fun. And that was something different of, of protests I've seen. Uh, you know, the anger and rage was there, but I also saw people having a good time as if the reasons why people were claiming to protest didn't matter. And that 
kind of bothered me, and I believe it bothered others. And again, I don't want to say um, a lot of the people who are out there or who cause damage aren't from Oakland or don't live around Oakland or don't you know live in the East Bay. I don't want to characterize it as that, but I will say that there, yes, there were people from other places. But what it made me think about was whether or not you're coming from Oakland or you're coming from somewhere else, um, you're here. I'm I'm hoping you're learning something. One, I hope you learned to be more discriminant about businesses you're you're targeting. Two, I hope you're this is not the end of your activism. Um, I want people to talk to each other. For instance, every conversation with my friends, whether they're black, white, Latino, Asian, or Persian, every conversation, personal conversation I've had with my friends has turned to race. And that's what I want the legacy of the protests uh, this weekend and going forward. I want people to talk about race more openly and uh, I, I, I try to impart that advice on people like, yes, let's talk, but let's not talk in stereotypes. Let's actually ask questions and, and want to learn. What, what do you think is going to happen next with these protests? Do they continue for a few days and then we all go back to sheltering in place and the other drama of the day? Or do you think that this is, can something happen because of this? Or, you know, what do you look into your crystal ball and tell me what's going to happen next? <laughs> I, I think um, if there are no other incidents between uh, people and police, that this will peter out, unfortunately. And I say that. If because right before I got home when you and I uh, for this conversation uh, on on Broadway in downtown Oakland, uh, a young man was almost hit by a police SUV and that police had accelerated through the intersection just to intimidate the people that were gathered on the street. And in his efforts to to swerve to, as to not hit the people, a young man had come into his path. That man fell down and ended up underneath the SUV. If the officer hadn't stopped, his legs would have been crushed. Something like that is going to bring more people out. But I will say this. My crystal ball is this, Audrey. And I've, I've been talking to you know police experts, experts on race, to politicians uh, the last two weeks about this. If the president is reelected, what we saw this weekend is going to be a regular occurrence. It is going to be something that I fear that we will see for days, maybe even weeks on end. If the president is reelected, there will be more people on the streets and more destruction, more cities burning. Well, that's probably a a, a, a a sad place to leave this podcast. It seems like a lot of them are like that nowadays. Um, I hope you stay safe out there, and thanks for being on today. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. I'd like to thank Otis Taylor Jr. for being with me today. Thank you to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. Fifth Emission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.